I'm Janae Myers, CEO of Chicago Cares, and welcome to How Chicago Cares, our weekly podcast series exploring how Chicagoans can care for one another and make an impact during COVID and beyond. As the city's leading provider of volunteerism, Chicago Cares is committed to helping us expand our definition of what it means to serve, to connect, and to support one another, especially in these challenging times. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Vu Lei from Nonprofit AF about how nonprofit and foundations need to work together to meet this moment. With Vu's trademark lively and direct style, we'll talk about how our sector must pivot right now to really finally address structural inequalities. Now let's turn to our special guest. Vu Lei is a writer, speaker, vegan, Pisces, and the former executive director of RVC, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Vu is especially well known for his no BS approach on his blog, Nonprofit AF, and we're excited to have him with us on today's episode. Vu, welcome to How Chicago Cares. So first, I'm going to fangirl a little bit um, for when we started thinking about this podcast and dreaming up what this could be. uh, We as a team were like, what's like a celebrity or a stretch? And, you know, as we were thinking, you came up as our celebrity stretch um, because as a team and so many of us in the nonprofit space have followed your blog for years. So Thank you. Thank you so much um, for coming and being a part of this today. Thank you, Janae. I'm glad to be here. Great. So um, so first, um, Nonprofit AF. I, yeah. Previous to Nonprofit AF, wasn't it called? Nonprofit, nonprofit with balls. balls. Nonprofit <laughs> with balls. And uh, as a person who likes to um, cuss a little bit myself, uh, and, and, and place a, an occasional swear word appropriately. Um, I always love just the kind of the boldness of the title and the AF, as the kids would call it, would have a bleep word in it. But what does AF really stand for? It can stand for whatever you want. Nonprofit and fearless. Nonprofit and friends. Nonprofit mm. are fabulous. <laughs> That's the story I'm sticking with. I, I love it. Stick with that. I love it. I love it. Well, um, just a little bit more background and your history of the nonprofit sector. Um, again, you're out of Seattle. We'd love to just hear a little bit more about kind of what compelled you to start writing this blog and your kind of rise to nonprofit celebritydom uh, and and your work. So give us a little history on your. Yeah, I I started the blog about eight years ago when a foundation asked me to write, and you can't really say no to a funder. No. <laughs> it was the uh, Social Venture Partners, a really great organization, and they asked me to write from a grantee's perspective. And I thought, well, I can't, I can't really say no, but I wanna, yeah. I wanna do it my way, right? Which is to yeah. write with a with a little bit more humor, because we just we have so much academic writing in the sector. And the people in the sector are really funny. And there's more to our sector than just the serious stuff. There's a lot of hilarity. Yeah. So I wanted to capture to capture that. I was with an organization called the Vietnamese Friendship Association. And uh, it, was, it was working on, on helping immigrant refugee communities uh, to adapt to life here in the United States. I was there for, for nine years. 
and then I, I moved to uh, to found the Rainier Valley Corps, which again is trying to strengthen organizations led by communities of color and help leaders of color to to gain their capacity to to do important work. Amazing. And you've always managed, I think, in your writing, even in times like this, when there are so many serious things to be talking about, you're you're able to put in a couple zingers, some one-liners, right, to, again, maintain that kind of integrity of the, the, the blog and, and the humor and your personality in it. But you have no problem addressing the big issues of the day and the things that are happening. And I think, you know, for us, we're seeing with COVID and the recent uprisings with police brutality, it's just clear that our country's history of racial injustice and segregation must be really addressed in a structural way. How are you seeing um, the nonprofit being willing to support this and that sector at large? What what can our role as the nonprofit sector be with some of this structural work? Well, I, I do think that we have to contend with like the history of everything that we're dealing with. You know, like all of these challenges come because of years, hundreds of, or thousands of years of historical injustice, including slavery and colonization. Uh, and we just haven't been able to wrestle with that. And I feel like we haven't been able to be really honest with ourselves as a sector. And in many ways, we are perpetuating the injustice where we're trying to fight. I don't think we mean to do this, but we 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 do that anyways by by not addressing these issues or getting our donors to feel like they are helping out and it becomes like a band-aid that makes them feel complacent so i i, I do think that we we as a, as a sector we need to stop being the sort of white moderate that dr martin luther king jr mm-hmm. mentioned was like the biggest barrier to justice it's not the people out there wearing hoods and and burning crosses it's the people on the side saying, "Yeah, I believe you. You know, you know, I, you know, Black Lives Matter, sure, but like maybe you shouldn't be so loud. Maybe you shouldn't be so angry. Maybe you should go and work with a, a nonprofit to to sign that petition to take down these racist statues or or whatever." Yeah. And those are probably the most dangerous. And we have become, in some ways, this entire sector of white moderates. Everything that we do. From philanthropy, uh, the way the foundations uh, give out money, to the way that we engage with donors, most of whom are white, when we make them feel very good about themselves, but giving $100, when maybe they should return the land that was stolen back to the Native community, or make reparations for slavery, which they benefited from, which their, their wealth is built upon. So we have to address these much deeper and way more uncomfortable issues that we're we're going to, if we're going to achieve what our sector is, is supposed to be doing. That's right. And I think the uncomfortable piece is a hundred percent. The hardest part for folks is again, we all get the, the racism is in the air that we breathe and these systems and institutions that we've all built and played a part in are the very thing that we need to start dismantling. And in order to do that, that means things are going to be messy That means we have to step outside of our comfort zone of what that means and sometimes put things at risk, right? Um, Which means maybe putting a a donor at risk or those dollars because you might upset someone with taking a stance or pushing um, the organization in a particular direction 
or having hard conversations. And the thing we've said um, at Chicago Cares for us and how we want to continue to proceed forward is we believe everything good can happen in relationship, but you have to be in relationship with people. You also have to be in relationship with institutions in order to change them, right? You have to be involved in them and can't just do the work from the outside. There also has to be relationship on the inside to start again doing that work. Um, So that's the journey that we're on and kind of our philosophy. And that is going to take a very long time, but we're committed to doing that work and having some of those hard conversations and figuring out, you know, what is our part and our role. And we sit um, very uniquely with, right, government, the nonprofit sector, um, community sector as well, and corporate. We work with a lot of different corporate partners. So how are we able to use our influence and our relationships with corporate America to raise some of these issues with those corporate employees um, that are often working with us and figuring out how to volunteer and give back in community. How can we kind of flip the script with them and get them thinking differently too? Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that, Janae. I appreciate you all doing that. I do want to challenge this sort of idea of giving back though. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that we have, we have trained, we have conditioned donors, corporate partners, to believe that they are giving back. But what that implies is that they have a whole bunch of stuff that belongs to them, that they have earned, that it's their hard-earned money. And now they're giving back, so we should be appreciative of whatever they're giving back. Mm-hmm. But we, but I, I feel like that has been, in, in many ways, really destructive because maybe instead of asking people to give back, what they should be doing is not have taken so much in the first place. So really kind of decondition them from this idea everything that they have and that they're giving back is theirs and it's their largesse or their generosity that is that that is what they're doing when the reality is they should not have taken so much in the first place which means everything that they're taking is not theirs to give back in the first place wow how do you even start a conversation like that oh i don't know i (laughs) i think a lot of people are are very tired of, of waiting for people to start this is why I think we can learn a lot from everything that's happening with the, the racist statues that are starting to be brought down, right? Which is people have been asking nicely and saying, how do we start the conversation on taking down these Jim Crow era statues that were designed to terrorize the black community and other communities of color? And communities have been trying that sort of approach of being very civil and to yep. wait and to work on legislation and things. And it never has worked because who are the ones with all the power, is not oftentimes our community members. That's right. So I think sometimes we cannot wait for the conversation. We just have to do what is needed to be done. And yep. that means sometimes people are not going to be happy. Yep. Yep. And I, I think that uncomfortable, that messy piece is going to be how we're going to have to coexist for a long time as we continue to, while trying to build bridges, blow them up too. Right, because <laughs> burn some bridges down. Honestly, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Because some some of them aren't working in the way that we really need. And I I really love that challenge of really thinking about the give back in a different way. Because that that's really true. And I you know what we say to our volunteers, our uh, all of our stakeholders is how can you first listen? Right, listen to um, a the world around you, to people, colleagues, friends of color do the work by reading and educating yourself. We, we sent out um, for this weekend as part of our kind of move to action, 
a bunch of different um, articles and kind of advocacy actions that folks can take, um, you know, around, um, is it HR 40 um, and some other things, the uh, reparations um, article that was just out in the New York Times, just trying to lift that up so again, folks can have access and do some of that work themselves so they can think about how to personally start stepping up. But this move to advocacy, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think the nonprofit sector often is scared of that. Oh, I can jeopardize my 501c3 status. And oh, what if that upsets a donor and we take too much of a stance? What are your thoughts on that? If we're going to achieve what our sector is designed to do, we have no choice but to engage with advocacy and politics. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to lose your 501 status by advocating for what is right, then it's probably worth it because otherwise, what is your 501c3 status for? Yep. Or if you're going to lose a donor because you're, you're advocating for issues that they, that they may not be comfortable with, then are they the right donor to have? Yep. Um, we have done a really poor job engaging with advocacy. And by we, I mean the progressive uh, side of our sector, mm -hmm. right? Whereas conservative and right-wing folks are like, no, I, we are totally going to try to get as many right-wing judges into position as possible. We're going to change laws. We're gonna, And they have been very effective at it. And yeah. people on the progressive side are like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, this is, I'm, I'm too good for, uh, for, uh, for politics. I don't want to get my hands dirty playing politics. Yeah. Basically, that has how we, and, and it's, it's terrible. And we can't keep doing that anymore. We no, can't think that we're above the prey. Yes. Yeah. The game is it's bad and we keep playing. It's like someone is out there setting fires. And instead of trying to stop them setting fire, we're just like, oh, let's let's do let's do a workshop on on, on burn lotions. No? Let's let's do right. smoke inhalation trainings. Right. Stuff like that. Like, no, right. uh, why don't we stop the people who are putting out who are who are starting fires? But not the fires. No, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And you know, a thing we talk about at Chicago Cares and for, you know, for us intimately, really our staff talks a lot about empathy and how do we follow the lead of our, our partners that are really just most impacted by our city's challenges. And in these times, like, what do you think it's important for nonprofits to ensure their programming is really, again, this kind of goes back to your giving back comment, but mutual and community driven versus just fulfilling the need of or mission of that nonprofit? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, one, I, I really do appreciate empathy. Right? I, I try to teach my kids to be em empathic to the world around them and to people who look different than, than they do. Um, and at the same time, I do feel like that we might need to really be thoughtful about empathy and sympathy, right? Because what happens is that oftentimes, there, we just, as human beings, cannot generate enough empathy for people who look different from us. It's been scientifically proven that if someone is of a different race, you will naturally just have less empathy for them. But does that mean that you should not care about what, what is going on with them and how, and how to help and how to change the systems that are disadvantaging them? So maybe what we need to do is really focus instead of necessarily empathy as the only condition or the only factor in should we help people or not that we target justice 
which means that we do what is just, no matter if we can summon summon up enough empathy or sympathy for someone. Mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm getting really tired and frustrated of politicians who are like, oh, my my son came out as gay, so now I'm supportive of, of gay rights because I can now empathize, yeah. right? Well, <laughs> but this is what what leads to the the murders by the police of black people is that a lot of you are just like I. I I can't empathize. I'm not a black person. I, I can't empathize yep. with with a black person. Well, does it matter whether you can empathize with them or not? Killing black people is wrong. It's an, it's an injustice. Whether or not you can empathize is in some ways irrelevant. You need to yep. be supporting Black Lives Matter no matter whether you can empathize personally or not. And that's justice. Yes. I love that that flip because, again... It is hard for folks to sometimes get to that empathy piece. Not that we shouldn't still continue to try to educate them, get folks proximate. I think that's been a big part of our work too, is how do we get folks proximate with each other and in relationships so they can have sometimes hard conversations and and start to, you know, ask questions, seek to understand those kinds of pieces, but then also show them the underlying inequities where they can go, well, that makes no sense, right? And if, if, you, if you, your arc bends towards justice, where can we take that as people and really understanding that? Yeah, I appreciate the conversations again and the seeking to understand. And at the same time, also, Push. even if you don't understand, <laughs> yeah, I think going yeah. back to what you said earlier, Janae, of how do we actually center the voices of communities, right? Which is like you trust them, you trust yeah. them to, and you you support them, provide them with resources, whether you understand them or not, whether you think that there's solutions. Like this has been a huge issue: is communities keep proposing solutions that people with most power and privileges just cannot understand or comprehend. So then they spend endless amounts of time trying to understand, but they will never be able to understand in, in many circumstances. But so, so instead of, but, but they get, keeps getting stuck in this, like, I have to understand. I cannot support you unless I understand you and your solutions. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and that's kind of where we have been stuck. Yeah. We have to move towards, like, okay, you are communities that are most proximate and most affected by injustice. And I will ensure that I support you and whatever, even if I, I don't understand at all what you're going through or what you're proposing, I don't know why or how it's going to work. I'm still going to trust and support you. Yep. And I think so oftentimes, uh, so many folks in the business and the corporate world have a, sometimes a consulting framework, right? If it doesn't fit into this, 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 and where where's the ROI and where's this and use all the jargons. And it's like, now sometimes the solution is just super simple, right? Like a kid can't get to school because he's got to cross a street because it's a gang line, put another bus stop in, and then the kids going to that school aren't going to have as much of an issue. That's one little solution, right? Versus go deeper and get to kind of the core of it. And why are we even having, you know, the gang line crossing question, right? Um, but how do we get people to go deeper? And and I think that's absolutely right. We have to just really, and I, and I think our work, and to challenge all my colleagues um, who listen and are doing the work in the nonprofit sector, to push ourselves to have these harder conversations with all of our stakeholders, um, to really get down to 
that justice piece. Um, so I, I love that flip as well. Um, so I also wanted to talk a little bit about funders. So in your blog, you, you talk, I mean, look at nonprofits can't exist without funding. Uh, philanthropy in the funding community is definitely um, still a, a necessary evil, a part of right the system, system whether that's evil, good, bad, uh, otherwise. Um, what about the relationships there and what do you think foundations can really do to support structural change and really help move towards this racial equity lens that we're all talking about now? Foundations, me, progressive foundations, let's, let's, let's face it. There's a difference between progressive foundations and conservative foundations. And it's very ironic that conservative foundations are extremely effective because they give multi-year funding. When I say multi-year funding, I mean 20 or 30 years at a time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and significant amounts. They trust uh, people as partners like, hey, you don't believe in climate change? We don't either. Here's $5 million a year for the next 20 years for you oh, to right. fight against this, right? And on the on the progressive side, it's this, the opposite. We are treated, nonprofits are treated like parasites and freeloaders by progressive mm -hmm. funders. Who don't realize that that's what they're doing but everything is is from this sort of suspicion based model which is i don't actually trust you i think that you're going to embezzle or unwisely do things so i'm going to put all sorts of restrictions on your ability to work and that has been the case for the last several decades there is no possible way we can solve these issues when progressive foundations are untrusting uh fun for one year at a time waste our time with endless shitty practices like so many hours spent on grant applications mm -hmm. why can't we just all have one grant application yeah. but no we end up like trying to to like uh like change them based on the whims of foundations so we just we, we are so far behind the conservative foundations and that is a serious problem and then of course foundations don't want to engage in advocacy they don't want to fund it there's mm -hmm. so many there's so many uh, contracts for grants that say you cannot use our money to do advocacy or lobbying work or politics or whatever. No yeah. wonder we have been so far behind. So if they want to to for us to be successful in this in the sector, progressive foundations need to act exactly like conservative foundations, but with values that are aligned with equity and justice. Yep, yep. And the thing that I saw, um, and we've benefited from during this time, is so many foundations um, moved so quickly during COVID moved money faster than I've ever seen, got in the bank account, made it general op, have adjusted, have um, stood up a bunch of relief funds, gotten that money out on the streets incredibly fast. And the question I think from the whole community is like, why can't that happen all the time? Like, yeah, well, why isn't, why can't that happen all the time? That seems pretty easy for y'all to flip the switch and do like what, why did all that bureaucracy and, um, process need to be in place when you saw a need and you just acted on it. Well, I Why think this is so hard. I think this is a question for for everyone to examine, which is our own personal conflicts of interest, mm -hmm. right? We think of it as this sort of nebulous thing that we that we that we sign when we join a board or something. Um, but the reality is, all of us are conflicted in, in this work because our mortgages. Or like feeding our families depend on our ability to get paid uh, in this work. And because of that, we, we always unconsciously are avoiding things that would lead us to getting fired or demoted or whatever. 
Yeah. And one of the one of the most honest and refreshing experiences I've had in talking to a foundation or a group of foundation officers was when one of them stood up and said, "You know, we have to acknowledge the fact that we get paid pretty well as foundation staff, yep. and our jobs are stable. We don't have to fundraise. Why would we rock the boat and jeopardize our our jobs?" So yep. if people cannot acknowledge that, then there's no way. You know, a lot of this is like, well, busy work to help justify people getting paid to do what they're doing. But that does yeah. not benefit our communities. Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. That, that is profound. And, and truly there is that that is a reality. And, you know, as a nonprofit leader myself, not only do I worry about myself, my livelihood, my mortgage, but I have a, a staff of almost 40 people and I worry about theirs every day, too. And that any wrong move I make, right, uh, piss off the wrong funder, um, make a, a bad risk management decision, and people suffer, uh, including myself potentially. So all those are factors that are conflict of interest, which make it just incredibly difficult. I think that I always talk to a foundation, and I'll probably be writing about this, but we think of foundations being a spend-down foundation, right? There's the mm -hmm. perpetuity foundations who just want to exist forever which makes yep. no sense because we might not have a future. Right. Um, and then there's the, the spend down foundations or the sunsetting foundations who know that within 10 or 20 years, they're going to spend so much money that they, they won't have any left and they'll close. And I think that in some ways is a framework that we have only put on foundations that, but I think we all of us need to have this sort of spend down sunsetting framework. If you and I only have 10 or 20 years to do this work, to, to, to help create the world that we want to see. What, and we know we only have that this much time and that by the end of 10 years or so, we will have to leave our position, that our nonprofit has to close down, that all 40 staff will have to find a different place to be. What will we do differently? Oh, yes. And I, I have said oftentimes, um, the mission of nonprofits should be to put themselves out of business, right? Because you're looking to eradicate something, whatever your mission might be, that's the point. Like someday I should be out of this job because if I do my job well, right, and efficiently, I will be out of this job. And that's an important thing. And But so many of us don't drive to that because it has become just, I think, ingrained in the culture that, again, we exist for perpetuity as agencies and organizations. And I think the funders, you know, um, and the funding organizations do the same. Whereas it's like, how about giving that all away before you go and, <laughs> and get it out in the world and have it do the most good it possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. It, it, we can continue to dream, but we also have to fight. And I think that's a, a big part of the message here is we really need to think about and, and fighting for that. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I've said this is a hard time to lead right now because we have, First, it was the pandemic, which bad enough itself with all those ramifications. Then adding on the layer of um, the civil unrest. And then when you start to think about um, the economy and the ramifications that are going to happen as we come into January, or excuse me, into July, we're looking at um, the PPP loans coming um, up where folks kept 
people employed that they may now be facing layoffs. So I think the unemployment numbers are going to rise. The um, the extra $600 a week for unemployment, that's supposed to run out in July unless they make some other kind of a move. Um, and I just think some of these domino ramifications plus COVID potentially, you know, we're seeing it in a lot of states right now with this resurgence. It just doesn't feel like there's any hope, right? It just, I just named all these really hard, difficult things that are coming. What is something, Vu, right now that gives you hope? Yeah, I do feel like there's, there's a lot of challenges for sure. But I do. I feel like we are we we as a as a nation as a world has gone through a lot, yeah. like the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression and the, the World Wars and, and everything. And they are really awful. And at the same time, from many of them come some really catalytic changes that are necessary for for justice to to thrive for the for this arc of of the moral universe to bend. So right now, for me, I, I do feel like there is there's hope in that people will actually wake up and recognize the inequities in our society, and and start to see that we're we we are all affected by one another's fates, right? If we don't have paid family leave, paid sick leave for people, then they're gonna work while they're sick, and they're gonna yep. they're gonna they're gonna infect everyone, right? So yep. we have to we have to ensure that people have paid sick leave. We have to ensure that people have paid like family leave or childcare, we have to yep. make sure that our elders are taken care of. We have to make sure that every everything is accessible. In the past, I know that people with disabilities were saying, "Hey, can can you have more online things? Because I can't get into this building, or I, I you know, whatever." Yep. And the response was always, just like with the foundation, "No, sorry, we need time to think about that," and etc. And now, when it affects everyone, people are like, "Oh, I guess I can. We can do a Zoom." Within a day or two, right. everyone learns how to do it. So it's just a matter of all of us just really switching this framework. It's it's like a hard reset. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Um, <laughs> we can we can we can use this moment to build the sort of world we want to see. And I'm also really excited about some of the elections that are coming up. Mm-hmm. Right. Look look at uh, Amy McGrath in Kentucky. There is a long shot chance that she could actually defeat Mitch McConnell. If we yeah. can all wake up and there's more women of color running for office than ever before in history. And it's very exciting. And it's just a matter of us all really seizing this moment and ensuring that the voices of the people most affected by injustice are lifted up because they're going to have the solutions that will work not just for the communities most affected by injustice, but for everyone. Yes. Oh, I love that. Thank you. That's a a beautiful way to put how we need to start thinking about the opportunity and the hope that's still there. Vu, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the nonprofit sector and how we're addressing the COVID pandemic and widespread protests against police brutality and civil unrest. Our listeners at home can keep up to date with Vu by listening to nonprofitaf.com for weekly posts about the nonprofit sector or by following at nonprofitaf on Twitter. So, okay, Vu, at, here at How Chicago Cares, we'd like to wrap up our interviews in a little silly way with a word association game. Uh, are you up for it? Sure. I got to warn you, though, I'm really terrible at this. You know, with word <laughs> we'll, we'll take it. We're looking, we're looking okay. for it to, to be light. So, okay. Summer. Chocolate. Ooh. Vacation. Hummus. 
I'm really hungry right now. Maybe we should not <laughs> Nonprofit. Awesome. Fundraising. White. Mm. COVID-19. Challenging. Social justice. Necessary. Equity. Money. Community. Hummus. Future. Uh, interesting. Yes, I love it. So, so fun. Vu, thank you so much for joining us. This has been just such a treat and a pleasure. Really appreciate your pushing us, the perspective, um, all that you're doing for the sector as a, a leader and a voice and really reflecting so much of what we're hearing out on the ground and putting it in a way that is challenging to all of us. So thank you, thank you for participating, and we're so happy to have had you. Uh, thank you, Janae. I, I enjoyed myself. This was great. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to How Chicago Cares, our weekly podcast series exploring how Chicagoans can care for one another and make an impact during COVID and beyond. Despite the uncertainty of COVID-19 pandemic, there are still many ways we can step up to support our neighbors and make an impact. And Chicago Cares is here to help you do that. Visit chicagocares.org today to start your volunteer journey. A huge thank you to our guest, Vu Lei, for joining us today to discuss the need for a new and more equitable normal in the nonprofit sector. Join us again next week when I'll be joined by Jonathan Swain from Lincoln Limited to discuss how both the business and nonprofit sectors are adapting during the current health and economic crises. Until then, I'm Janae Myers. When the COVID-19 pandemic ends, and it will end, let's challenge ourselves to continue expanding our definition of what it means to serve one another so that the city can become more vibrant and equitable for all. Thank you for caring, Chicago.